Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, Mike Procopio, Vice President of Development at the Procopio Companies. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is the podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. In this episode, Mike updates us on the Caldwell, a 10-story residential tower in downtown Lynn, Massachusetts. You'll hear the strategy of marketing for the building, and then we'll spend some time recapping the Infinity System, a structural metal stud system that was used in the project and Mike's ultimate thoughts on whether Procopio would use the system again in the future. We also get into project financing and the general residential landscape during our current up-in-the-air market. Enjoy the show. All right, round two. Mike Procopio, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. Good to be back. Thanks to thanks for coming back. Um, we're going to get through this one quicker. Um, this is a little bit of a follow-up to the last time you were here, and then we're gonna cover some new things. Um, last time you stopped by, we talked uh, predominantly about zoning, uh, the use of the Infinity system, which was a metal stud, structural metal stud um, system that you used. Uh, and in both cases, the zoning and the Infinity system was in relation to a project in Lynn. You had 10-story residential project, um, what was unnamed at the time, now goes by the Caldwell. Um, for right now, I will put a link in the show notes. So if people want to go back, I would recommend going back to, to listen if they hadn't listened. But um, if people are not inclined to listen, could you maybe just um, give an update on what the Caldwell is and then kind of where you're at right now? Yeah, so Caldwell's a 10-story uh, mixed-use but predominantly residential high-rise that we're doing in downtown Lynn. Delbrook is the contractor on it. Um, so we started that um, maybe... In, well, not maybe. We started that in, in uh, November of 2018. We broke ground. Uh, we'll be turning over phase one uh, in uh, September, October, uh, and then full full CO probably in early December. Um, but it's uh, it was a unique project, A, because it was a frankly a suburban high-rise, um, which, is, which is unique in general in this area. And then... Um, it also was done with, as you alluded to, the Infinity System, which is a like-age uh, metal stud uh, bearing system, which is pretty unique and has some challenges we can get into. But um, right now they're pre-leasing, so Graystar is the manager on the project. Uh, they are in the leasing office over there. They're they're doing hard hat tours and stuff like that, and gearing up to open uh, the beginning of October. Now. looking at the marketing, you and I had chatted a little bit. I thought it was an interesting approach. It looks like it. Now, this was, uh, you know, like we talked about prior, unbeknownst to me, there was some intention with this, but I looked at the way you were doing marketing and I said, oh, it's cool. Like, I could see that you're marketing towards a younger set, more urban set, um, where people want, want urban living, but it has kind of a retro feel to it. And apparently that was exactly what you were going for. Exactly so the, intentionally, the, the yeah, marketing so. was, was uh, on point, but... Explain what was the style that you guys went with there, or yeah, Graystar so in particular. I'll, I'll plug Proverb. Uh, they're our branding agency. They're Boston-based. They do a really good job of digging into the demographics and what the resident profile is going to be, and the history of locations and stuff like that. And what uh, what we developed for that site was kind of this um, this tension between old and new. 
Um, and it was this really rich history of tech, you know, technological advances that happened on that site and the shoe factories that were there and kind of really world changing things that happened there. The lasting machine was invented there and we'll go into what that is, but it, it, uh, it was so impactful in the shoe industry that it dropped worldwide shoe prices by 50%. Mm -hmm. And it was invented on that site and it was first used on that site. So we, we took this thought process of kind of the rich old history on the site and kind of the retro elements of that and then you know something that's new and something that's that's modern and something that speaks to kind of you know a new user and a new resident moving in and kind of new life for a community and uh, and we wanted that to come out and you see that all through I and mean, you saw it in the branding for sure but it comes through in the architectural design and in the interior design and there's kind of you know, the, the hallways are bifurcated and one side is kind of retro and one side is modern and, and the, uh, the unit types have, there's a retro unit type and there's a modern unit type. And, you know, even things like the lobby are kind of have a, have a defining line through them. And one side is modern and super high tech and the other side is very retro. And, you know, art's a big piece of, of downtown Lynn. There's a huge art scene and, and uh, art culture there. So there's a lot of that in the building. Um, so the art scene in Lynn is strong. So yeah, so Lynn's got this really strong art scene. So in our part of our you know work in the building was to you know integrate a lot of that, and it's very art centric in the building. And there's an art consultant and all this stuff. But even in the lobby, you have this duality of the old and the new, and the modern and the retro. And there's there's a bunch of uh, super high tech 4K uh, digital art displays interspersed with traditional paintings like and traditional paintings sculpture work mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And and it's really cool and. And uh, it's interesting to hear that just on the first pass of looking at the branding, you picked up on that because it's very intentional and it kind of carries through the whole building. And I think it'll it'll be different when people are looking at it. You walk into these buildings, a lot of them, and everything's the same, mm. right? Same kitchen, same units, same floors. Amenities all look the same. And uh, we're hoping that's one of the things that makes it stand out. Yeah. And I liked you talked about how you kind of had a retro elevator next to a modern looking elevator. I thought that was yeah, neat. Yes. So you, you like come in in the elevator. One elevator's got all the high tech, you know, digital displays and all that stuff. And the other elevator has this dial, this huge dial that's cast iron and looks like it was there, you know, when there was a shoe factory there in the, in, in, you know, 1900. And, you know, you click to go to the 10th floor and the little arrow moves on the dial. Yeah. And it's just really cool. And we tried to get those elements to kind of. You have to get an attendant. Like a pre-war elevator. Open the gate, go up. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of risk in that too, right? Like, um, I didn't plan on talking about this, but I remember when I was a building inspector, there was one guy that I used to always enjoy going to his project. He was a developer in the South End. And like every time it was something unique, you know, where like one of them you go in and it had a feel of like almost like a terracotta type uh mm -hmm. southwestern feel to like like sound that doesn't sound appealing right now but like just really unique a lot of times details and the craftsmanship were there and it was just a different look and it was just very inventive every time and I always liked going into that and then i went out to one of his projects and it was just very it looked like everything else and and i forget the guy's name off the top of my head but I was just like, let's say phil like phil i'm like I'm surprised. I'm like, every time you usually have much more like put into this. You're know, like, this seems, why do you do this? Right. He's like, I couldn't sell them. Yeah. He goes, we'd eventually sell them. They're ni really nicely done. And you f eventually would find the right buyer that would buy it. He goes, and then I spoke to a real estate broker and I'm going to be off on it. But at the time it was like dark floors, white cabinet, this type of stone, this type of baseboard, uh, 
Sub-Zero fridge, mm-hmm. this type of thing, this type of dishwasher. The dishwasher was so cheap because they have like their off-brand now with like the high-end names. So like, yep. um, what's the like Viking stove and mm-hmm. stuff like that? It was like a Viking stove, but you went to close the oven and it felt like it was like Fisher Price, yeah. right? And but sure as shit, the things move. He's like, that's the thing. That's what everybody wants. They want what their neighbors want, and that's the thing. So I, I think there's some risk in there. Um, so I think it's, it's really pretty- it's a really fine line to find the the distinction that you want because that's what you want. You want it to be distinctive. You want it to stand mm-hmm. out in people's minds and impress on the lease walk. That's or the sale walk, whichever the case may be. But it's a fine line to make sure that every option, everything you're using is market acceptable, right? Like, so, you know, if you took the retro kitchens at Caldwell and did the whole building in them, that would be perfectly fine. That That's in line with the market, right? It's inside those parameters of the white and gray kitchens and the, mm. you know, the light oak floors. And, and if you took the modern ones, the same thing, right? It's a fastball over the plate. You can't go too far left askew. or right with that. Yeah, if you go mm. too far askew, you're exactly right. You'll end up with a product that doesn't feel right, you know, mm. or it's, you know, you can't build, you know, a stucco apartment building like you build in Florida, here it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. like when you when you when you drive up to it. Never mm-hmm. mind when you walk into it or you know exposed exterior hallways and things like that that are very mm-hmm. common in other parts of the country. You have to be within what the market wants here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. There's huge risk there if you deviate too much yeah. from that. I think the only other time I've seen um, on a larger scale somebody just actually be unique was the W Hotel. Their whole concept they had a they have a concept of like voyeurism, right? So when you went down the hallway they had like a wall covering and it was this retro photo of there was a bunch of women and there was a hedge and they were shoving their heads into the hedge and you see like all their their skirts so it was like they were looking through the hedge so it was like they were looking into your room yeah and then you would go in the bathroom in the wallpaper if you when you looked at it from far away it just looked like a pattern but when you got up close it was all little eyeballs so it's like they were looking at you in the bathroom and then they interior also, design gone wild. Yeah, and then the demising wall between the bathroom and the hotel unit was like kind of like a rice paperish thing, so you could see mm-hmm. like through, through it. it. So it was yeah. like this whole like voyeuristic thing, and I'm just like, yeah, it wasn't for me, but it was. Yeah. Only, and I'm not saying you guys are that well, far afield. What's but, What's interesting about stuff like that, and there's a lot of that's not the only example of stuff like that. It, mm. When it's really well executed it can be super cool, yeah. right? Like you can't have it edgy where people don't like it, right? I mean, that's right. a huge that's a huge risk, whether it's in hospitality or multifamily. If, if it's too edgy, but when you're able to integrate it, like even something, the, the things that go both ways, like the wallpaper, like it's just a pattern. But you get up close and you're like, oh, those are eyeballs. That, that's that's well thought out. Like that's yeah. well executed if that yeah. was part of the design, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's why I guess I say it's a risk. It is a right? risk. So it could be something where that's a home run and people are like, I like you've got to live in there. This is really cool. I love it. And like, I'm more inclined to like the not typical. Like I, I want, like I wanted to blow my brains out if I walked into one more condo that looks mm-hmm. the same. I'm like, oh, this is exciting, right? Yeah, let me pay two million to look yep. like fucking every Everybody. other one on every street. And like that doesn't appeal to me. Um, so I, I'm kind of interested. I'd, I'd love to hear how it eventually finally plays out, but. Um, I thought people would find that interesting. So, but let's let's go back a, a little bit. The Infinity System. You were yeah. kind of excited about it. Um, we talked about how they had kind of a structural engineer that almost comes with it mm-hmm. to help you design the system. Um, 
having used it now? What, what do you kind of, what's your take on it? So I, I would say my takes shifted a little bit. Uh, it's a cool system. It's super unique. Um, and it's definitely uh, cost effective from a materials standpoint, uh, even materials and labor. Where I think it, where I think it has drawbacks is if you have any sort of any sort of unique designs, right? Like, I guess backing up, it's perfect for a hotel, right? If you think about how a hotel is built, mm. uh, same reason modular is perfect for a hotel, right? It's it's yep. boxes, it's clearly defined, everything stacks. There's no there's no strange spans. There's no right? it's just very nothing very custom. nothing custom, right? Mm -hmm. There's no articulation in the facades. There's no cantilevers, right? All of those things they become very difficult to do. They require a ton of supplemental steel work. So it worked okay for our system. It worked okay for an apartment building. It worked okay because we had relatively small unit sizes and unit spans. Um, it's slow. Every single panel needs to be picked by the crane. Every single panel needs to be set individually by the crane. The panels weigh thousands of pounds. You can't, the crane can't pick two panels and drop them on the deck and guys can move them around like they can with wood panels. The crane basically stays attached to the panel until it's shot down, braced, 100% perfect, then it disconnects and goes and grabs the next panel. So it takes forever. The floor-to-floor floor jumps are excruciatingly slow because of the nature of the system. See, I would have thought the opposite, right? Yeah. You think panelized, you, you think fast. You think fast. You think fast. But when you think, I think we think that because we're used to wood on a lot of these buildings. Mm -hmm. And wood, they pick a bundle of panels. They put 10 panels up there and carpenters move them around. Mm. It doesn't work. These are, these are heavy, heavy, heavy gauge studs. Um, the panels weigh 2,000, 3,000 pounds. Hmm. And you know, the crane's critical to that. So your crane time becomes relatively expensive. You have a crane there for a lot longer than if you were flying up with steel and then infilling it all. Mm -hmm. um, and why I was very careful saying it's less money when you talk about materials or the trade specific, it, it, it is cheaper probably. Yeah. Um, if you start to roll in your crane costs and your general conditions costs and your hoist costs and kind of a longer schedule, even if it's only a month or two months, I mean, on a job like that, what's a month? Three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You know, it, you start. You know, what's the crane? One hundred thousand dollars a month. What's the hoist? Seventy-five thousand dollars a month. Right. I mean, these things. Mm. These things start to add up and start to negate the value of the system. The other thing that we found with it. And I don't want to sound like I'm down on the system. It is a it is a really cool system, yeah. and it really does work for some applications yeah. really well. It needs a ton of supplemental steel for anything unique. So we put a pool on the roof. That pool had to have structural steel that traced all the way down through the building. Hmm. We put a flagpole uh, hanging off the front of the building at like the 10th floor, right? Sticks above the building. That flagpole had to have steel that traced all the way down through the building. Oh, wow. um, we blew out some space on the sixth floor for some amenity space. So yeah, you, you'd think you're going to have some beams up there and you're going to have, you know, spread those loads around to have those spans. That structural system had to track all oh, the way through the building. Right. So you look at just this infinity package and you're like, wow, it's, it's a million dollars less than if we did structural steel. Well, the reality is you got to add back into that $800,000 worth of structural steel to even make it work. Mm. So I don't know that I would use that specific system again on... A building like that. Yeah. Um, I think it has uses. Um, it certainly is cost effective in the right design type. Um, I think that the benefits that it has, you have to be really careful in the design not to negate them. 
you know, by the design, right? I mean, you can't just, it's almost like modular, right? You need to know from day one, this is the system we're going to work with. These are the kind of constraints of that system, and we're going to design to that. Or even mass timber, CLT, same thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you know, it's really important how you design those floor plates for minimal waste and stuff like that. Um, it's the same thing with the Infinity. Hmm. Anything for what would be those are all cons, right? Um, do you feel like there was any anything that surprised you from a like from a positive standpoint? No, I mean, I mean the positives are if you use the right decking, you don't need to shore anything. You're able to get trades into the floors pretty quick because you're not you're not working around shoring and you know reshoring and stuff like that. You're you're kind of dealing with the slab beams and stuff like that and then you're you're able to put trades right in the floors right away right um it's a pretty robust deck system so you've got a six inch slab between all your floors you're absolutely it's the best system for floor to floor heights right so it's a it's a structural it's a slab on top of on top of a structural deck yeah. so your floor assembly in the purest form is six inches yeah. And you don't have W18s or nope. W24s Nothing. eating up headroom. No, nope. no, nope. okay. they do all. They do they or they, I shouldn't do. They do all. They can do the beams in in in, in the deck slab beams, cast mm. in place beams. So uh, from that perspective, that's a huge plus. If you want to maximize, if you want to maximize your floor to floor heights, if you're constrained by a building height and you want to get you know squeeze in that seventh story or squeeze in that tenth story, it's a great system for that. Mm. Um, better than wood. Better than a, a lot of things. I think you'll see. I think where you're going to see them be really competitive is in relatively simple, higher mid-rise buildings. So a relatively straightforward design in the seven, six, seven, eight, nine-story space. You get to the 10 stories and up, I'm betting that it's better to go structural steel or cast in yeah. place. Speed, efficiency, general conditions, crane time, you know, supplemental steel, those things all come into play. Yeah. But I think right now, lumber, you know, up 30% in the past month, I think you're going to start to see it become very competitive in that, like, uh, five over one kind of... Oh, that's a good... I think it's going to start to become very competitive against lumber in that in that six and seven and eight story range mm. um, where we used to try and eke it out with wood, you know. Yeah. And that's one where... One level podiums, two level podiums. Wood's crazy right now. Huh. Lumber's and, crazy. And then if you look at the necessity of needing fire-treated lumber on the yep. exterior walls yep. and just the fire hazard. I don't know, like, I'm weird. I keep track of this stuff. But um, over the last three weeks, three large lost fires. Yep. Um, you know, you look at from a risk risk standpoint, now you're going way down. You go with yep. insurance standpoints, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's huge benefits there. Do you feel like at the end of the day, then it was a, it would have been a wash from a price perspective when you figure in all the added GCs and for that building versus yes. structural steel? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There was only a $1.5 million delta between structural steel um, and infinity. Um, oh, that was that was almost, if not all of that, was consumed by, by an extended schedule and... Um, the supplemental steel and kind of supplemental requirements that are mm. required. The other thing, the other thing that you have to consider is if you have walls that have to be rated or fireproofed, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to fireproof a beam as part of the structure than have yeah. structural load-bearing walls that now be, need to be rated by using multiple layers of drywall. How does that interact? You know, how does that interact with shafts? How does that interact with you know door jams and door bucks and kind of it really has these kind of trickle-down effects as you try to rate the structural system for the yeah. building because your walls are your structural system. You're not just, you're not just fire spraying, uh, uh, 
a column line or a beam, uh, it's the whole wall mm. and how you treat that. But as an outsider, you look at it real quickly and say, okay, so the cost ends up being a wash, but you end up having better ceiling heights. Yep. Yeah. I'd almost take that, right? The ceiling heights are the ceiling heights are a huge factor, right? Especially um, from a marketability standpoint, yep. you walk in, you've got yep, and you can leave it exposed, right? So you don't even need to. I mean, we put finished ceilings on it in that building because mm. it's the building, it's the design of the building. But you could leave it, you know, it has a finished deck below it. It's not, you know, you can leave it exposed. You could you could uh, do all sorts of kind of open ceiling concepts with it. Mm. Um, it would definitely not work in a condo play because it has almost it has no flexibility with the spans, right? So yep. twelve feet. Or if somebody wants to come in and renovate the condo, then you, yeah, you, could, you can't combine two units. You can't yeah. deviate without a ton of supplemental steel. You can't say, oh, mm-hmm. you know, we got to the eighth floor. Everything above this is double the unit sizes. You can't do that. Yeah. It has to stack. Yeah. Um, you have an ADA bathroom and a stack. All the bathrooms have to be designed like that because certain walls in that bathroom are structural. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't need an ADA bathroom elsewhere in the stack. The layout's going to be the same. Well, at least the size, right? Yeah. The, the footage, the turning radius is there. Mm-hmm. Put your other vanity in and a different shower in, but... You're eating up square footage that otherwise wouldn't have been. Mm. So it has it has drawbacks. I think it has its places. I think it will. I think it will become extremely uh, prevalent in hotel construction and in like student housing. That can be very simple and very straightforward. Yeah, and like um, you said, you bring that height down because the other thing you start running into is like wind load. Yep. What you need for shear, you start to ha- need a lot more um, structural support. Yep. Whereas you start bringing it down, the wind is less of an issue. Probably less structural. And that's, sizing of and that's the other thing when you start to get into the taller buildings with it is how you deal with lateral and shear. So mm. you have to use concrete. So we had to put big T, you know, we have our cores, but then we had to course. add cores. We had to add big, you know, a big T, oh, really? uh, concrete okay. cast in place T that runs up to the building. Well, you don't have the ability to use, you know, bracing or anything like that mm. that you can pick up, you can pick up shear with a steel system um, relatively easily in different yeah. areas. And you don't have that ability with that. Uh, with that system, you need to use basically concrete cores. Yeah, because you can't just throw a diagonal right, exactly. wind bracing in there yeah. or shear yeah. plate or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anything else um, you are looking at non-traditional um, from a building type standpoint? Yeah. So we're, we've got a small project we're doing in Winthrop. Um, we that was originally designed as modular. Um, we can't make the numbers work modular, even though the time savings is really attractive. So we're going to stick it. Um, we are looking at a building. May I ask you? Sorry, I was uh, making a note there. But so you were saying you were considering modular for yeah. Winthrop, smaller project, but it was we can't make the money work. Oh, financially. Mm. So you would have liked. So to it get trims this- GCs. It saves time. It saves schedule. It, you know it. it it shaves a lot of things off. On a project that small, um, you don't realize the full savings of what the modular company is bringing you. So, for in you know to keep it really simple, you're getting boxes with 90% of the plumbing done. All the plumber has to do on site is make connections, right? Mm-hmm. And it, in that case, it's PEX, right? It's a three-story building, so they're literally they literally could go in and use shark bites and make the connections, right? So, in theory, that cost from that plumber on site should be 10% of what it would be to do the whole building. Now, let's say they're never going to get there, so let's call it 20%. Well, in reality, when we have a plumber look at those plans, the price we're getting is 75% or 80% of the total cost. You're not realizing the savings because they're not proficient at modular work. So mm. you got to find that one plumber who does all the local modular work. Now they're busy. You're paying a premium. Mm. We just can't recoup some of that. So it's really easy to quantify, okay, here's the box. I don't have to pay for lumber. I don't have to pay for a framer. I don't have to pay for drywall, whatever. Yep. Um, but it's those kind of 
mixed trades where it's like, okay, well, there's still some drywall work in there. There's yep. still some plumbing work in there. There's still electrical connections you have to do. Um, we just can't get those numbers to work. And there are many firms out there. I don't want to bag on modular at all. Mm. We used to build a lot of modular houses uh, in the 90s exclusively, hundreds of them. So it's a great system, and I'm a big believer in modular. But in multifamily, uh, it seems to be a few firms that have really figured it out and mm. have their right sub pool, and it's working really great for them. Tachi's doing a bunch of modular stuff. Um, Windover's doing a bunch of modular stuff for Beverly Crossing and other guys. So, you know, the guys that have figured it out, it's working great. And it's fast and it's clean and there's just a ton of benefits to it. Um, For us, where we don't do it all the time anymore, we're just going to stick for it. Yeah, because I have a friend that did a lot of, it was low-income housing. Mm -hmm. It was like developments of like anywhere between two and four unit buildings, multiple. Mm -hmm. They were thrilled going uh, modular. Yeah, we did a lot of modular yeah. houses, and we did big. We did million dollar houses, mm. million and a half dollar houses. You know, ten, twelve mm. boxes, right? Big houses that when they were done, you didn't know they were a modular. Mm. Um, and this was in the '90s when modular was, was synonymous. Yeah, well, yeah. well, we we had a really good quality one. We were buying them from from some firms in Canada, but it, in general, it was synonymous with trailer park. It was like, oh, it's junk. It's a manufactured house. It's junk, and it, it was never really that like. It wasn't the same as a trailer. Don't tell me it's the same as a trailer. It's not. Yeah. It's really well built, right? I mean, we had ERVs in modular houses in the 90s mm. before ERVs were ever a thing. Right. Like, you know, because the, the houses were so well built. They needed they needed the air, right? Yeah. So, you know, it was never a quality thing. It was always, you know, it was just, it worked back then for mm. us. We were buying it from Canada. The dollars worked. We can't make it work much. But um, we are looking at a building that would be uh, steel with an EcoSpan floor system. Okay. Uh, so Ecospan is a is a steel. It's like a barjoy system almost, but they're four four feet on center. It's got a specialized composite deck that goes over it, and uh, we haven't fully baked the details or how we may or may not use it. But mm. it's a really cool system for you know non conventional. What's interesting about those the system is you got these really wide bays, so it's a truss system. So theoretically, it's not good for your floor to floor heights. But if you think that it's four foot on center, you can fit a lot of equipment up in the yeah, bay, yeah. and it really is not as impactful on your ceiling heights as one would think. Hmm. That's funny. I haven't heard of that even. Ecospan. Ecospan. So it's it's a Volcraft. I believe it's a Volcraft system, hmm. which is new core yeah. steel, one of those you, proprietary steel systems. Do you feel like you get to the point um, where it's worth doing, biting the bullet on a couple of modulars just to get... Uh, probably it, it right probably at some point yeah obviously. i mean i think i think as a general philosophy in building that's the way of the future yeah you know off not modular with a capital m off-site construction whether yeah. that means we're panelizing or whether it means we're building bathroom modules or kitchen modules or full box modules whatever yeah. that looks like um i mean we're building on site the same way today that we were frankly 200 years ago, yep. really 500 years ago, mm-hmm. right? A bunch of lumber shows up, some men show up, they labor on it, and they build it in place. Um, I don't think that's the most efficient way, and I don't think that's the way of the future. The question mm-hmm. is, where is that line, and, you know, who's the first mover there, right? I, yeah, and that's where I wonder... Same thing with mass timber, right? There's yeah. Just huge potential there. Yeah. I wonder the companies investing heavily in modular, if they win the day when they can really figure it out yeah right I, yeah I, I think they will yeah i think know. there's huge 
benefits there. Yeah, there's... Um, and I think the benefits grow with... There's a project size where it works, right? I mean, our project in Winthrop that we're using as an example, it's a 30-unit project. It's small. There's not a lot of room for error there. Um, it's a $10 million project. When you start to get into really big units, you know, 300 units, you can't do the modular because nobody can build enough boxes to keep up with you. So it's this sweet spot in there somewhere of those 50-unit to 150-unit buildings mm. that right now I think modular is really efficient for. Yeah, we can get um, some scale too, right? Which right. is like, okay, if you're gaining right. 10% of time for every unit, right? But you're building a four-unit building, right. it's not not worth the effort. But if you're, you know... It, yeah, as you, and it's, it, that same thing carries through on like the GCs, right? So like your savings with modular is all about time. It's more money. Mm-hmm. So it's more money up front to do modular. It's going to cost you more. Yep. The question is, does does is it outweighed by your GCs? So you take a small project, like my winter project, there's not really much to speak of. There's one guy on that. Like it has a staff of one running a job like that. Like, right. oh, so you've trimmed the schedule six months. You're 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 to market six months sooner, but there wasn't really major savings associated with that. Mm. You trim the schedule six months on 200 units. In the that's team. a staff of eight or nine spinning a meter of 300,000 a month or something, right? Like there's real savings there that start to go into that equation. Mm. Okay, interesting. So the the you're looking at that span system eco span um i know you have one looked at some stuff in with respect to mass timber um played around with infinity so i i think it's impressive and for folks that don't know didn't listen to last one you guys do both development property management uh real estate consulting you operate as a general contractor sometimes. Mm-hmm. What's the plan for Winthrop? Are you guys going to GC that yeah, yourself? Yeah, we'll, we'll GC Winthrop ourselves. Um, and then you also have a site work subcontracting mm-hmm. component, right? Yep. Um, I would actually recommend people, and again, I'll put this in the show notes as well. You guys did, what's it called? Crowd? Real Crowd? Real Crowd. So The podcasts. I mean, the, the uh, webinar. Yeah, so... Um, Tell people, you'll explain a lot better than me. Explain what's happening there. What's a real crowd? So so we'll typically fund, it all comes down to how we finance our projects on the development side. So typically there's three ways that you're going to fund a project. And we have funded projects. So there's bucket A, which is all of our own money, right? Like, hey, we want to do this project. We're going to put our own money into the deal, go to a bank for a loan, and that's how we get the project done. Then there's the really big projects that are institutional, where we'll go out and get a private equity partner that's going to write a really big check. It's one partner for the deal. Um, the Carlisle Group's one of our partners. We're doing another deal with another group now. Um, and those are kind of the really big projects, 200 units, 300 units, um, 75 million and up, 50 million and up maybe even. But then there's these kind of projects in the middle that are 20 million, 30 million, $40 million projects where it's too much equity to put our, all our own money in. And it's not big enough for the private equity groups, the institutional groups. So what we've done with those projects is we've crowdfunded them. We've, we've done private placements um, and we've gone out uh, both on our own, our own platform that we have internally and then on RealCrowd, which is a real estate crowdfunding site. We post the project, we market the project, and investors can invest in the project. Um, and basically at the same terms that the institutional groups do, right? We basically take those terms and we apply it to a, a retail investor. And we have people that are putting money from their retirement accounts in or from their just their savings or the guys that like to invest passively in real estate. And uh, and we give them all the information. We put all the, the stuff out there in terms of our projections and our, our underwriting assumptions and our marketing materials and our sensitivity analysis, all the same things that we do for these big institutional deals. And they invest uh, in those projects. So we've launched three of them on RealCrowd. We 
did a five and a half million dollar raise for our, our condo project in Portland, Maine. That's completed. That's not the project. The raise is completed. That's fully fully capitalized. Uh, we have our Wilmington uh, project out there right now. That's a five and a half million dollar raise. We've got our ways to go on that. Um, and we're still actively marketing that and raising those funds. And then we put this project in Wilmington, I mean, in, uh, in, Winthrop, in Winthrop on it. And uh, in, two we- in two weeks, we raised, it was a $2.6 million raise. It was a, it's a small project, it's 30 units, really cool. Downtown Winthrop, great location, walk to the beach, um, just really cool little boutique apartment building that we can make really nice. Uh, and in Winthrop, where there's not a lot of ground up, it's very high barriers to entry. Put yeah, it that very way. high, very yeah. high. So and very desirable, right? Hmm. You know, five minutes to the airport, five minutes to the Blue Line, five minutes to downtown Boston. Like whether you drive or take the Blue Line or take the ferry, like it's just really cool location. <laughs> Walk to the beach. Walk yeah, to the which beach. You already did. Right. Yeah. So 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 we got this, and we're right downtown where there's shops and restaurants and stuff like that. So. Um, so we found this project. It's like a ten and a half, eleven million dollar project. We were raising two point six million. We put it on Real Crowd. In two weeks, we'd raised the two point six and had one point eight million on the wait list. So it's just kind of some in some parts of it, it's confusing to us because we can't tell what's making one project pop over another sometimes because mm-hmm. that was very fast for that. Um, but it is kind of interesting that there's a, a certain subset of people out there that are kind of making this decision that they want to be in real estate. They, they want to do it passively. They're not going to go buy a multifamily, you know, a two-family or a three-family and be a landlord. Mm-hmm. But they're basically saying, hey, we like this model. We're going to give you 25000 or 50000 or, you know, the investments, the average investment is right around 50000 mm-hmm. Most checks are that 50 to 100 range. But then we have people on there. We have people on there that are giving us 300000 500000 We have a guy that gave us 750000 in one of the deals. So... Mm-hmm. It's um, but you, you take as low as twenty five. We we'll take as low as twenty five. Yeah, we'll take as low yeah. as twenty five. Yeah. Well, I think the appeal there, right? So you're like essentially crowdfunding. Yep. Uh, real estate development. Yep. Right. Which some people might say is scary. Where it's what's that old the Joe Kennedy line where doesn't he talk about like the shoe sign boy starts giving him stock tips and he knew it was time to get out of <laughs> the get out, uh, of get out of the market, market yeah, right, right? You know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, but. The reason I say I'm going to put the link in there because for people to just learn, like I sat and listened to your whole pitch, right? And it's to understand what is an institutional investor hearing, right? So, you know, billion dollar firms, mm-hmm. what are they listening to to decide whether they want to invest? You as Joe Blow can sit on your computer and hear that. Yeah. Like, that was so eye-opening to me and so like such a good education and i think the ability to for someone to get access to something that has traditionally been reserved for people with giant sums of money you know say hey i'd like to listen in on this and maybe i do want to take 25 percent of my ira and drop it into Mm -hmm. um real estate that's appealing on like a lot of levels right like what's how does that work? It's like, because it was this black box for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and I think that's what people think it is. People think, I'm not going to do, I don't, I don't know enough real estate, whatever the case may be. You get that education. I mean, you you watched that webinar. So we walk through on these webinars and basically walk through our entire thesis for a project. Here's why we like the project. Here's why our money's in the project. Here's why we believe in the demographics. Here's our doomsday case scenario. Here's what we think. Here's the sensitivity analysis. What happens if we don't get the rents, right? These questions that people have. You know, your average Joe thinks 
well, I have all these questions. What if you don't get the rents? What if the area is not as good? What if you don't sell it for as much money? Those aren't unique to average people. That's exactly the same questions that an institutional investor asks and we have to answer yeah. and defend your underwriting. So we do that on these on these webinars and people people do love it. Even if they don't invest, they love kind of that look behind the curtain as yeah. to how we underwrite a deal and what that looks like and why we like certain areas. And if you watch, there's two of them out there that we did with RealCrowd. Um, there's the one for Winthrop and there's the one for Wilmington. And what's interesting, if you look at those two, is you see the difference in the pitch. It's not the same pitch uh, mm. as to why we like those projects. The reason we like Winthrop is very, very different from why we like Wilmington. One's about the life science clusters and the biotech and technology building up on 128. Mm. One's about proximity to Boston and a quaint, affluent beach town. You know, They're just two different pitches and you start to see, hey, not every project's the same. Yeah, Maybe somebody... But well, clearly, people more people bought into the I like this play on this affluent beach town five minutes from Boston versus okay, there's this play on life science clusters in Wilmington and Andover and Woburn and Burlington, and that's a bit of a different pitch. And mm. you start to see what what grabs people's attention and kind of what they feel comfortable with and what they can wrap their their heads around, right? I mean, you mm. see people that dive after one project or another. So it's kind of a cool look behind the curtain. Yeah. And for people that are not from this area, because it's crazy, but uh, it's becoming more and more common for non-Massachusetts people to listen to this, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, Wilmington is a much more suburban yep. town. Yeah. Uh, like you said, uh, Winthrop is um, not necessarily urban in the sense of like skyscrapers, but it immediately borders Boston. Mm-hmm. Close to the airport, beach community, like completely different. Totally different play. Different and worlds. And you'll, you'll, you saw on there, part of that pitch is because people aren't from here, right? We, people yeah. aren't from here. Part of our pitch is why Boston in general? Like forget whether it's Winthrop or Wilmington. Those mm-hmm. are both Boston MSA. So mm-hmm. why Boston? What drives Boston? Well, here's what the education that drives Boston. Here's the demographics that drive Boston. Here's the healthcare organizations mm-hmm. that drive Boston. Here's why Boston outperforms the rest of the country in general in multifamily. Now let's talk about Winthrop. Let's talk about Lynn. Let's talk about Wilmington as to what drives those specific markets and why we like them. But it, it gives people this really cool look inside kind of our underwriting. Why do we like certain projects and mm. don't like other projects? I would be very curious to see, because um, now I'm going to make some assumptions here, but I'm assuming on an institutional deal, there's 10 people from XYZ company looking at a deal when they make a decision, right? And they look at certain metrics. There's layers and layers and layers. Right, but it's not hundreds of people looking yep. at it, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, is there some value in two hundred people looking at it and saying, like, "Oh wow, look at how much attractive, how much this attracts people," and then two hundred looked at this one in a very. And I wonder if you see in the long run that real crowd is almost a little bit predictive for how it, well it absolutely is predictive. Yep, it is a it is a really broad touchstone. And, and even aside from things just related to the deal, it actually makes us think about the way we present things. So if you look at those two projects, Absolutely. Winthrop had a whole bunch of um, photorealistic renderings. They look like the building, right? Mm-hmm. Wilmington did not. Wilmington, we had a, we had uh, architectural sketches done. So they're like hand-drawn mm-hmm. and, they, and they look, it's just a different style. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions we actually looked at afterwards is, is, is one type of actual presentation of how we present the rendering of the project more attractive than another? Is this photorealistic one actually driving more interest in the deal because it's photorealistic? Absolutely. Versus this architectural sketch that I like because I like architectural sketches, but mm-hmm. maybe people look at that and they're like, oh, that's just all conceptual. Yeah. Versus this one's fully baked. And the reality is they're both at the same place. 
mm-hmm. but it's that perception. Even things like that, you know, what are people looking at that's causing them to grab, you know, gravitate towards one or the other before they even get to the deal points. Yeah. Before they're even deciding, well, Winthrop's this really cool beach town. What made them go over there first? Yeah, absolutely. Like the the more you read and you know whether it's studies or people's theses that but at the end of the day you, you if you read enough you see really quickly that everybody thinks they are making decisions based off of data right and facts but it's emotion it's emotion right it's emotion that's driving and it's other like there's a really interesting book this book when by david pink i think it's david pink and he looks at Time, the effect that time of day has on the way people uh, test, respond. And it's amazing. This is the same curve that happens across all types of businesses. They looked at data of um, parole hearings. There was 8 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then 3 o'clock, right? Like 90% of the people that had the 8 o'clock ones got out. Like it would, yeah, and then if you if you had the three o'clock one, you were you're, fucked. You're done. You're done. Right? You're, 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 you're going back. Right. You're going back. And yeah. um, and then they did. Uh, there was there's. I forget what I think it was like a northern European country. They had standardized testing across the country because they don't have states like us, mm-hmm. right? So everybody in the country does the same thing, and they take the test. And the difference between people that would take the test in the morning and the afternoon was like twenty percent difference wild. performance, right? And he had it like to basically a graph. And sometimes your graph will be a little off because some people might be more night people than day people. But you could see over parole, testing, when you should have meetings at work, like it's down to a science. Like if you want someone to answer a certain way, you wanna have them, you wanna have the conversation at this time, right? And if you're doing this type of work, you wanna schedule it for this time of day. You're doing That's this type. So like we all think that we're just, we're not biased and well, no, we take that information, we look at it and then we make a decision. Nope, like time of day matters, the sketch matters versus like so much of that stuff matters. And I think when you start getting larger data sets where you get hundreds of people looking at your stuff, I think you can really start to, I think you'll start to see some very interesting information that you can then take that knowledge and go to the institutional folks and do it that way. I, I'd be yeah. fascinated to see what you kind of what you learn there. Yeah, it's interesting. So the 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 crowdfunding has definitely been a it's definitely been better than we thought it would. So we always thought it would be just to fill the gap, right? So like, hey, we can raise. We need to raise five million bucks, and we know that from our friends and like kind of high net worth people we know and have always expressed interest in investing in our stuff. Like, we know we can raise say three. So that leaves this two million dollar gap, and we can do that on real crowd. You know, or CrowdStreet or Equity Multiple, these other sites. Um, what surprised us is like, take Winthrop, the entire project filled up on there. Yeah. Right? Start to finish. Post, done. Right? It, it's done. It's, Does it make it easier for you? I mean, in some ways, right? So, I mean, on the one side, I have, you know, 50 investors in the deal. That's yeah. inherently a problem because there's 50 investors in a deal. Right now, they're very limited. They're true limited partners. There's not a lot they can do, right? They have no control of the deal. Say, we they, give them quarterly reporting, right? But at the end of the day, they still email. What's this? What's that? Can I have an update? And we want to be good partners and we want yeah. to answer them, right? So I have to have someone on my team who's investor relations and talks to them. Mm-hmm. Institutional guys can be their own pack of troubles because they're there every week. 
You know, yeah. they want quarterly reporting that's not, or monthly reporting that's not, you know, a basic narrative and some financials. It's 65 spreadsheets yeah. that, you know, go all the way to ZZ. You know, it's just, it's it's really extensive and takes a lot of time for the team to do. So there's drawbacks both ways. We, we like a good mix of deals. We've always gravitated to the smaller deals. Frankly, because they're they're easier to get done with banks, they're easier to get done with neighbors. The big deals have their own pack of troubles that go with them, and mm. you know, we like having a few, but we've always gravitated towards that fifty small to medium, you know, forty to hundred unit deal size. Mm. Okay, so if you're hungry, grab one of those because I'm not letting you go anytime soon. <laughs> um, I got no place to be. <laughs> yeah, so. It's still early in the post-COVID world. Um, if the real crowd deal was any um, indicator, it doesn't what? not appear like. Well, it's interesting. So that's another data point. So we launched Wilmington, which has lagged. Wilmington has been very slow to invest. Very similar returns, right? So very similar projected returns. Wilmington's a little bit of a bigger deal. So one's eleven million bucks, one's twenty million bucks, but. In the real estate world, those are very similar project sizes. Hmm. One's 30 units, one's 50 units, similar profile, right? Wilmington, we launched in uh, late March, early April, into the teeth of COVID. And we had this conversation with the real crowd folks, and we were like, hey, should we launch this? And they're like, we don't know. We don't know what how it's going to perform. This will be the first deal we've launched in COVID. And we thought there might actually be a play. At the time, the stock market was in free fall. And we were like, there actually might be a play for safety here. Or we can say, you know, rich people, poor people, there's people in the stock market that have a lot of money in the stock market and are going to go to cash, whereas they might say, well, we'll put some in cash, but we'll put some in real estate because it performs well. So if you looked at that original pitch for Wilmington, it had a ton of data about how Boston performed coming out of the 08 recession and what was the rent growth for the trailing five years and what was the job situation for the trailing five years. And we had all this data layered in there because Mm -hmm. we figured it was going to be a play. It just didn't subscribe. It was very slow. Wilmington, we launched, call it three weeks ago, mm-hmm. four weeks ago, and um, COVID had sort of settled down, right? The stock market's back at 26,000. Yes, we're still feeling the effects of it and we're wearing masks and all these things, but people have sort of chilled out a little bit from the world is ending and have gotten more into a routine and it flew, right? Mm-hmm. So the appetite is there either way, but I think there was so much uncertainty in March, Early. April, and May, um, we had a ton of data in there about what our existing collect, what were our collections in April first, and what were our collections in May first mm-hmm. for our current current uh, projects, and kind of what was the debt situation looking like. And a lot of these people, they're individual investors, but they're smart, and they can read the news and they can see, hey, you know, Fannie and Freddie put blocks on new ground up, and they're requiring one year of reserves in the bank, and all these kind of hurdles to lending, and they're kind of saying, hey, I want to invest in this project. I don't think you're going to get the loan. Come back to me after you get the construction loan dialed in. And we're sitting here saying, no, we got good relationships. We'll get the loan. Don't worry about it. Somebody's not going to buy that mid-COVID. They're going to say the world's falling apart. Mm. Get the loan and come back to me. So, and that's even, that carries through even to the, to the institutional side. That's happening a lot now is, hey, you know, we want to do this deal. We're not going to close until you've got the term sheet from the bank kind of thing. So I think things have settled down. Certainly capital markets have gotten back to more normal. Um, where we're at in COVID, whether it continues to be a problem or not, we'll see. I mean, it's certainly mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, it is a problem. Do you just, hear from some of your regular investors that they're a little more apprehensive, or um, no, 
No, it, it's they're they're usually the more sophisticated guys that are going to say, "Hey, can you talk to me about what what's your plan for the debt on this?" You know, hey, you're underwriting seventy five percent. Do you really think you're going to get seventy five percent debt? Oh, no, we don't think that. We need to adjust the underwriting down, right? Like, there's they're going to poke around kind of assumptions, but they're still generally comfortable with real estate mm. and how it performs. Um, it's just a it's interesting to see how people viewed COVID. And its mm-hmm. impacts, right? Because I mean, there were times where we had really good data. We've always had really good data all through COVID. It's whether or not people buy the data, right? And right. what other outside forces are influencing it. So, take rent collections for example. Everybody said multifamily. You, no one's going to pay rent. Twenty percent of the population just lost their job. No one's going to pay rent. Well, the reality is, April our collections went up from March, and in May they went up from April, and in June they went up from May. So, uh, even above the normal trend line, we were collecting more than typical. Mm. So you say, okay, well. We didn't lose money there. Well, what's impacting that? Is it the stimulus dollars? Maybe, maybe not. Our apartments rent for two to three thousand dollars a month. A twelve hundred dollar check. Material, but not really material in mm-hmm. that context. Um, is it the six hundred dollar unemployment thing? Mm, maybe, maybe yeah. not. You know, you just don't. You yeah. have the data. Is it people spending less because they're not out and about? Right. Is it pe- is it people that used to spend two thousand dollars a month eating? On the credit card. In restaurants, and, and now they're just kind of paying the rent because it's this social contract that we have that, you know what, you pay your rent, mm-hmm. most people. And um, so it was always kind of this odd situation we were in where we had the data. The question was, how good was the data? Is there some other force that's influencing our data? You know, like, here we'll have another data point. What does, what does uh, September's rent collections look like with the unemployment thing going away? I don't know. Yeah. I think they'll still be strong. We've noticed reduced turnover. People don't want to move in COVID. So that means increased occupancy, less availability, increased rents. Is your um, profile of a renter a white collar? No, no. Um, There is certainly an aspect of that, young professionals. Um, I'm just thinking white collar is more likely to be able to continue to work remotely. Yeah, so so we have a lot of that. That said, we have a project in, we have a project, Ironwood project, heavy airport presence. Mm-hmm. It's in Lynn, it's near the airport. We've got people that work for JetBlue, we've got people that work for Massport. Um, you know, so that's, you would think that would have a heavy impact. Um, we have lots of firefighters and police officers and um, what I would, comp- I would call really, you know, I think traditionally we would call blue collar, but mm-hmm. highly compensated blue collar. Yep. Um, so that's really the profile. And I, you know, it's hard to read the tea leaves and see what's really going on because there's so many moving parts to it. There's the job losses, but then people are working from home. We don't really know who's, who's working, who's not working. Where's the stimulus money? I don't know. Can I ask one more question just around uh, logistics? So when you're going to get that slug of money from a bank or a group of banks, is that usually... A, a pretty standard amount like you can always get 60 75 percent from a bank is there a number where a bank is like we don't we're not going to allow you to f- take a loan for more than yeah 80 percent of the so, project like what's yeah the- so so it depends what parameters you're putting on it right and depends on the project size so if it's a smaller project and you're going to sign recourse personal guarantee like a personal we call warm bodies, me personally signing that I will personally guarantee the loan amount. If the project goes sideways and blows up in my face, I'm on the hook personally. Mm-hmm. My house, my car, my kids. Like, yep. If you're going to do that on a small project, you could probably typically, under normal terms, you could get 75% of your costs. 
that was not unheard of for even 80% for those types of deals from local banks where you had a relationship. Um, if you want non-recourse where it's, hey, we'll sign a guarantee that says we'll complete the project and we'll sign a guarantee that says, hey, if we commit fraud, you can come after us. But other than that, it's non-recourse. If the project goes sideways, the project goes sideways. You can sell the dirt kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, that was typically achievable in the 65% range, mm -hmm. so a little more safe from the bank. Um, kind of the deals that you know. Right now, I would say the deals that will almost always get done are going to be 60% deals. They'll get okay. done. 70% deals are going to be questionable. 75% deals are rare right okay. now okay. in the current environment. That's, that's all just a risk. It's a risk profile for the bank, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. If they're lending 80% of the funds to do a project and the market goes down 25%, they're upside down. Mm. Now, do you see, and obviously just, again, we're completely, uh, I don't even like to do this, but for sport because of your uniqueness with the multiple businesses, if things do slow down, does it start to make more sense for you to contract it out versus do it in-house or is it, or is it, kind of tricky and the opposite's true um, um so like in down markets does it make more sense where like okay this person's gonna pretty much take it at cost because they want to keep working or or is it okay it's a down market let's do this ourselves and see how much we can um it would be it costs. would be case by case Tip typically our our tendency is going to say let's do it ourselves and control it um that's kind of always our tendency anyways because we can control a lot of those kind of hairy parts of the deal mm -hmm. um but it does become more prevalent in the down markets not even necessarily down markets just uncertain markets like and that's what i would call it right now we don't know whether we're up or down right now right right um we're not down because people are still paying rent so technically valuations are the same and capital is still available uh if you jump across to the construction side well Construction costs are still super high, so that's not down. Lumber prices are up 30% in the past month, so that's not down. That but the question, is, the question is, will it come, right? Mm. You know, where's construction going to be in six months? How many jobs that were not fully contracted or certainly hadn't had a shovel in the ground are dead? We don't know, right? I mean, you don't know until they don't start what's dead and what's not. Yep. How many developers were getting a deal from a bank, maybe first-time sponsors or guys that were going from building... 10 unit and 20 unit buildings to their first kind of 50 or 60 unit building and maybe the bank's saying you know what we were comfortable with this six months ago we're not comfortable with it today mm -hmm. we need to wait we don't know what that attrition is going to look like how that's yeah. going to affect the sub the sub pool how that's going to affect the gc market mm. have you looked at the millennium the winthrop tower deal at all have you watched that at least in the news yeah so uh for people that don't know very large downtown office tower mm -hmm. that was going up um they have scaled back the size of the tower in the post-covid world for mm -hmm. lack of a better word uh, for lack of a better word what happens in a case like that is it just that they can't get the individual investors to make up that difference like the the bank is there because they're, they're talking about it's probably close to a billion dollar yeah. tower right? or it's exposure to an ass i would say in that case it's exposure to an asset class and they're saying even internally like maybe the bank's saying it for them or maybe their investors are saying it for them but i think there's a real possibility if they're a responsible developer which we know they are they, mm -hmm. they've done a lot of stuff they're probably saying internally oh is this the right time to bring a million square feet of new 
office to the market or a million square feet of new condo to the market or is this the right time to have the first and I'm not speaking about that project in yeah. particular is this the first is this the right time to bring a uh, 50 story building to the market with the first 25 stories being a high-end hotel probably not mm. right those are the types of especially with those bigger buildings you usually have a lot of moving parts there's retail there's promenade space there's office space there's condo there's rental there's uh, hospitality those are complicated deals to underwrite and I would imagine that they're pulling back and scaling back simply from a risk profile okay. um, but uh, certainly it's driven by banks and investors mm. So it's really the kind of just the scale of it, which yeah. is like, okay, that's just too much ex- exposure yeah. or too much risk yeah. in an uncertain time. Yeah. No, not that they're afraid, you know, if it was small building, they would be much less concerned. I, I, yeah, you would, right. Right. I mean, no, you, you know, you're not, somebody right now in Boston, let's just use Boston. Somebody right now in Boston building a hundred unit building isn't pulling back because right. there is so much demand in Boston that the hundred units doesn't move the needle, right? It's not going to affect rents. It will rent, right? Even if 20% of the people are unemployed, it will rent. The rents will be high, right? Like it's just, that's just the fact of life. The scale then changes, right? So take the huge project. I mean, it's happening and it's, it's, it's going forward. It's a 700 unit project in Chelsea, the Fairfield project, right? So that's a huge project. That's a huge percentage of the supply Mm -hmm. in a city, right? It's a huge driver of, you know, what happens there will drive rents, right? Like if that's not performing, rents are going to pull down, right? That's a much different calculation than I'm building 100 units in the city of Boston, right? Where, it's where they a need fraction of they a need 70,000 yeah. units just to get on track with their demographics, right? Right. So the same okay. thing with a big tower in Boston. You're going to build a tower and bring a million off, million square feet of office to a market when I, I don't personally believe this, but there's serious people having a conversation about whether the office is dead or not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, people serious people are having a conversation of will it take hospitality 10 years to recover? I don't think it will. I think people have very short memories. And when this is behind us, I think people go right back to what they were Mm -hmm. generally. But you can't discount it. Serious people are having these conversations. So you're going to look and say, okay, is it the right time to build a 30-story Ritz-Carlton with an average daily rate on the room of 900 bucks? Probably not. Why not? Probably not. (laughs) And a bank is certainly going to say probably not, right? Yes. And we were looking at, uh, without specifics, we were looking at a downtown um, hotel, a micro-hotel. Uh, that we were looking at doing and um, like 15 stories or 16 stories and uh, right before COVID. And we were, I was like sitting in one of our development folders in one of our programs. And I was like, yeah, that can go into the inactive folder because there's no way. It was a sketchy deal to start with because we were kind of like, is there this market for these micro hotels right there? Mm-hmm. 200 square foot units, really small. Um, and we were iffy on it before. And then I was just like, yeah, no yeah, way. Yeah. We're not going to get a bank to even come close to that. Right. So. You just see scale, and you got to deal yeah. with the realities of what's happening. Or you even look at—I look at the south end. They're installing those co-living units. Mm-hmm. Like right, right now, not the time to be building yep. co-living. That's a, right. That's a great example. We had a project. We were in a feasibility study with Common, which is one of the big co-living operators, mm. working through the pro forma of a co-living development with them as a partnership. And we, in COVID, said we're not doing co-living. Yep. We believe in co-living. We believe that there's a path forward for that. We believe that people have short memories, yeah. and the concept is sound. We cannot bring that to market right now. No, it's not the time. We have to convert this to a regular apartment building. Makes sense. Yeah. Same thing with unit sizes, right? I believe in small units, especially transit, right? I believe you do not need to live in an 800-square-foot one-bedroom. I think a well-designed 550-square-foot one-bedroom is perfectly fine for most people in our demographic. Hmm. Do I think that's the right unit to bring to market necessarily when people have just spent six months at home 
trapped in, in a four hundred square foot studio with their boyfriend or girlfriend trying to work from home and both be on Zoom calls. Probably not, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's going to affect short term behavior. We've shifted for our new projects, our one bedrooms, to be heavily one bedroom den, right? Which is relatively rare in this market. There's not a lot of them. I mean, like, if you look at the Revere Beach market, there's three percent of the units are one bedroom dens. Our new projects now we're having coming out with you know 80 percent of the units are one bedroom den. So there's work from home space or whatever. If you got a baby, it's a little nursery space, a little bit more elbow room, even in the urban stuff. Huh. It's a good strategy. I, like, you're, you're, I mean, I think so, but we'll see if, yeah, if we'll it's proven out. out. I, I think they'll perform well. Huh. I think there's there will be short-term brain damage from, for lack of a better term, from COVID. And somebody who's been cooped up, you know, with their significant other in a little apartment, it's aggravating. There's no, I'm, you know, cooped up in a house is aggravating. Like, never mind in an apartment. And... You know, I think that will, in the short term, make them look at stuff that's, you know, they'll say, would I would I spend $200 more a month to have a den or $300 more a month to rent a two-bedroom? Yeah. Yeah. This well, year, you- this year they would. Maybe not next year or the year after. They might go right back to the little unit. Yeah. But right now, while it's all fresh. Yeah. I mean, if you, if I had the option of, like, I could have a little uh, captain's house or something in my backyard right now. Yeah. Yep. I would take that in heartbeat to be able the ability just to be able to separate yep. and do some work yep. like would be huge. Um, I'll cl- I appreciate all the time you've given, so I'm going to try and wrap it up. I do want to ask one question first. So you have a sizable project starting in Portland, and now maybe this is all blown up because your thinking might have changed completely. Um, was looking outside of Massachusetts a uh, result of Massachusetts just becoming too competitive? Um, you know, you got the deal in Lynn, and, you know, we didn't talk too much about it this time, but a pretty um, pretty transitional community, mm-hmm. you know, where it's really kind of uh, changing. And at mm-hmm. the time, you probably got in when the numbers made sense. Mm-hmm. Um it's changing. <laughs> yeah. Numbers have, are changing. Yeah. So have the numbers changed just enough in Massachusetts that it, it pushes you to Portland? Or is it just that Portland was more desirable? What was So the short answer is no. Massachusetts hasn't changed um, because I still think Boston is probably the strongest multifamily market in the United States across the board. East, mm-hmm. And by Boston, I mean eastern Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Portland, so we've always liked, not always, for the past five years, we've really liked Portland and Portsmouth. Small cities, very close to Boston, perform financially like Boston, um, yet they give people a little bit of the urban relief. So you can live and work in Portland, or you could live in Portland and work in Boston. It's an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, it's not like, you know, my wife used to have a two-hour commute. Like, it's not, that's not the end of the world. And there's a train that connects you to South Station from Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always liked Portland as this like little mini Boston that had really good demographics and really good restaurant and a really robust little uh, economic boom going on there. And you know, for us, it's a little different because that's a that's an ownership uh, city. It's just it, it rentals they work. There's just not a lot of them. People want to own there, so it's condo play. Uh, so we looked at a bunch of projects up there. We kicked the tires on a bunch of stuff. We bit down on this project, um, and we're looking at other stuff up there. We just like the market. Mm. Um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, very similar. Um, we like it for the same reason. We don't have a project there, but we looked at a bunch of stuff. We were constantly pushing to get up there. Um, we view them, we kind of view them as Boston. 
like they perform like Boston. They're not, it's not like it's a separate market, right? It's not, you know, Portland's not Bangor, Maine, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, Burlington, Vermont, that's three hours away yeah. um, and inherently has its own issues. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, basically a, a suburb and it's still a city and it has all these economic drivers and, and tourism and all the other things. The thing that we're seeing now with Portland, so we were in that project before COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well before COVID. Well before COVID, yeah. yeah. So um, what we're interesting, what we're seeing up there with the brokers on the ground is they're seeing huge increase in people coming out of Boston, New Jersey, New York, and buying in Portland, Maine. Hmm. Um, exodus from the cities. We'll be interested to see how that shapes out. This was happening before COVID. I think COVID accelerated it. I don't think it's temporary. I think you're seeing people that are saying, I don't need to live in downtown Boston. I can work wherever, and I can have a lifestyle that's much more convenient in Portland. Restaurants, walkability, entertainment, laid back. How about price point? Is it not that different? Uh, it No, it's different. It's, it's less. So condos, like your top-end condos on the water... Um, in Old Port in Portland on the peninsula would be going for 1100 a square foot. So that's a discount to like the crazy stuff in Boston. But that's still a lot of money. It was a million dollar condo. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff we're building is that 500 to 700 range, which is kind of deliberately kind of more of a mid-market. We think we can deliver the... We think we can deliver the quality of that high-end one for a, for a lower price point and kind of drive sales that way. Um, but you can still go up there and buy condos for 300 Really? Yeah, converted three-family kind of buy a floor hmm. that's a two-bedroom condo. You can still do that. And is um, the... Maybe uh, not on the peninsula. You probably still could on the peninsula, but, it, you know, it's just... Portland's small at the end of the day. It's 60,000 people hmm. and has 600 restaurants. I mean, it's just... There's crazy... Yeah. There's a bunch of crazy stats about yeah. Portland that just kind of make you raise your eyebrow, and it's a good market. Yeah. How about the economics of Portsmouth? Um, you know, really, we think really good driven, driven by the restaurants and the breweries and the entertainment and the Navy yard and kind of similar price point is Portland yeah. or a yeah. little less. No, similar, similar price. Very point. similar. Yeah. And then from a tax standpoint, they're big Newbury ports. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's and you look term. at like, I know plenty of people that live in Auburn and yep. commute into Boston every day. Exactly. You know, like that's. It's about the same. It's exactly what it is. I mean, especially if you take the train and you're working on the train. I mean, it's, it runs constantly right into South Station. So, and it's right there in Portland. Hmm. Uh, you could walk to it. So, yeah. and I can't imagine that the like I, I I agree with you that we're creatures of habit. We're going to go back to what we're doing, but I think there was already a shift to more remote working. Yep. And like I know I experienced frustration when I worked for companies. Saying like, okay, like, do I really, I don't need to drive to sit in this yeah. office to do what I need to do. N- never mind, do I lose the productivity of the drive? I lose the productivity by the fact that Ted comes walking in my office yep. and wants to, t- like, it just, there's a place for it. Like, you need, you, you need to have the interaction, but it doesn't need to be Monday through Friday, this time to this time. And I know very well, like, I work great really early in the morning. And when I went yep. to work one place, they're like, oh, we start at this time. And I'm like, okay, I can come at that time, but... Yeah, I'd rather come three hours if, before that time. If, if I come earlier, I'm going to get yeah. three X times the work done because that's when I do my best work. But 
if you don't want that, then I'll show up at yeah. this time and punch that clock. So, I, you know, I think that makes it even more palatable, right? Where someone's working out of the Boston area or one better, you get into that life science belt you're talking about north of the city. Yeah. It's it's and even an hour. It's even closer, and it's you only closer. have to go into the office two days a week. Like yep. that's and we're seeing like so. If you look at Portland, you've seen a shift of Boston firms actually opening offices up there. Pierce Atwood has a big office up there, and there's mm-hmm. design firms that have big offices up there. And you've got U.S. Bank, and you've got uh, New York Life, and you've got Bank of America and Merrill Lynch, large office users, right? I mean, they've mm-hmm. opened big offices. I'm not talking a little storefront, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a shift. That's that's not they're not just servicing Southern Maine. I mean. Portland's the biggest city in Maine, and it's got yeah. sixty thousand people in it. So that tells you what you need to know. Th- those are those are Boston firms that are recognizing our people want to live there yeah. for the lifestyle. We need to open an office there, uh, and I think you're right. I think this started before COVID. COVID accelerated it, and I think refined it to some extent. I, I think people are. I think there's a lot of people that said I would work from home full time if I could. That are now saying, eh, yeah, two days from home might be great, or three days from home might be great because it refined the expectations. I think. Um, but I think you're right. I think you see people in Portland that still work in Boston, and they're in Boston, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, mm. and then they're working from home, right? So, I think it's. I think it was a great play pre-COVID. I think it's double down. Even I think, better. I think it's an even better play. Yeah, yeah, well, that's great. And I think we'll see a push. We've got a project coming up in Haverhill. Um, I think we will see a push in the short term, and by that I mean call it um, three to five years of people finding. The suburbs a little bit more attractive, in yeah. general. Breathing I room, it. breathing room, um, just general density. I, I, again, I think there's still going to be a play for the urban stuff and the transit stuff and the young professionals. But I think people, I think you're going to see less and less families wanting the urban piece versus a suburban piece that has some mixed use and some walkable downtowns. We like Haverhill with that walkable downtown and restaurants or kind of some of the stuff that you can get still within a half an hour of the city. Yeah, because I think you're you're right. There's definitely the appeal of the... I've even... It's funny, even pre-COVID, I just wondered typically from like the cyclical nature of things, you know, there's been such an urban push. Is there going to be a, just a cyclical... Am I using the right word? Yeah. Cyclical? Yeah. Sounds wrong for some reason. Like cyclical. Cyclical out of of the urban stuff and into the suburban stuff. And I think there's balance there because I don't think this is, you know, I don't think people want to live an hour from the city where they have to drive, right? I mean, people have this convenience thing that you want to be in Hmm. the city, but I think it's going to push to those inner suburbs. Call it inside of 128. I think they're going to be very attractive. But if you get that that urban downtown within a a town, I think it's a lot better. Like I was down in Plymouth and I wanted to go get coffee and I looked in like uh, other than Duncan's like to go to Starbucks it was a 10 minute yeah. ride and I'm like and then I think about it I'm like oh it's just 10 minutes but then I was like 10 minutes there 10 minutes back yeah. what do you, I'm like so, I just uh-huh. lost a half hour to get caught that's yeah. insane to me no, you, know? you get that you get that in Haverhill and you get that in you know Melrose and you get that in Stone you get you know you do mm-hmm. have these little pocket downtowns where it's walkable it's convenient, and yet it's still that kind of suburban lifestyle. Mm. Okay. Mike, this was excellent. Um, I'm excited to see how Lynn... Awesome. Us too. Yeah. Us too. Great uh, stars has just got to go. Yeah, it's like it n- nice to be able to hand it off to them, right? <laughs> yeah. Very. Awesome. But Very. Appreciate it. Um, Thanks for having me. And, you know, maybe we even do this again. I really enjoy talking to you podcast-wise and outside of podcasts, so Likewise. I appreciate you having the time to come by. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
Mascons, what do you think? Mike Procopio, I love having him on. He can talk about uh, such a broad spectrum of the industry from uh, real estate development and financing, the construction side of the business. Uh, I think he's a great guest for what we're looking to do with this show, which is really learn about all the different parts of the construction industry. And Mike's the perfect guy for that. So thanks for listening. Um, please like, share, all that kind of stuff. I haven't been asking lately, but those things do matter. They do get us heard. So everyone that's been reaching out, supporting things in general, uh, via text, email, DM, share, whatever, uh, it is all appreciated by me. And I want to thank you uh, to everybody that's done it. Take care. Hey, Mr. Watson, come here.